The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and today I'm sitting with Jonathan Pote. Hi Jonathan. Hi. And Jonathan uh, has a very interesting and very uh, I guess I could say long um, aviation career that uh, covered all sorts of things and um, so Jonathan tell me about where you come from first and and uh, yeah when where you were born and how you got into aviation and, and the early days. Fine thanks Dave. Um, I think I got into aviation probably before I was born. Um, I certainly can't date the start of it, but I was born in 1947, and to put that into context, there were still just the last few Mark 24 Spitfires to be built, and I think the first Canberra had flown or was about to fly, but it was the time when the aircraft of the era, which I love, were rapidly disappearing. Right. Uh, but I was able to see some of them before they went. Right, right. And you, you come from Devon? In I come from Devon in southwest England, so most of my time has been spent there, but I've travelled, obviously, to places of aviation interest throughout my life. Right, right. And you're pre- pretty much a Kiwi now. You've been here for 10 years. And I've been here for 10 years. It's, it's a wonderful country. Um, I just wish I discovered it sooner. Right, right. Well, tell me about those early days of aviation that you remember, or the first, first uh, days of your aviation career? Yeah, well, 
you know, there are the fanciful childhood memories of seeing Sunderland's taking off in uh, Mountbatten at Plymouth and flying over, and if you're a five-year-old, you actually felt the water coming off them. You felt the drips. Right. Of course, you didn't, but you know, <laughs> great roaring beasts above were something quite spectacular. But the more crystallized memories sort of start at school, of course. We were very lucky to have the last mosquitoes based nearby at Exeter, and they provided target towing facilities for the Royal Navy. Okay in Plymouth. Um, so the sound and sight of a mozzie roaring past was a common one, but even then I was well aware that I was privileged that this was the last and it wasn't going to carry on. However, one of those was TV959, T-Mark III, one of the three T3s they had, uh, which is now down at Ardmore being rebuilt. Right. So I have seen that aircraft fly. Wow. Whenever I say that to Warren Denholm, he kicks me. <laughs> However, um, that was what was the norm in those days. Uh, and fireflies would go over the odd um, uh, Grumman Avenger, the last one, XB446 was still doing the odd duty and rumbled past. And one fine day when I was probably only 10, a firefly flew over the house very low with the undercarriage down and that obviously needed investigating. So I went up to the disused airfield at Harabir and sitting on the runway was a firefly. Uh, he had made a precautionary landing on the still perfectly usable runway um, and for many years I had the um, starter cartridge cases that they used to, to restart it and after the engineers had had a bit of work, the whole village turned out to line the runway and watch this aircraft roar away and come back for a low pass. So that was, that was a lovely memory. Yeah, wonderful. Um, there were other good aircraft around at the times. One memory that I'll never forget is low flying because it was actually low flying. Uh, the Hastings, big four engine transport, yep. four Hercules engines, Formations of 12 in close formation would go over Dartmoor, probably briefed to be not below 500 feet. Yeah. But I was collecting serial numbers off the tails with my naked eyes and usually managed to get about a half of them. Um, and the sound, which of course would have been identical to a dozen um, Halifax 3s or similar, the sound was unforgettable. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, Valettas were used for low-level navigation training and in their case you could actually read the serial number with naked eye uh, from the fuselage. The Hastings had a big one on the fin but the fuselage serial I think is eight inches high so with a naked eye reading that they're not terribly high. <laughs> there were a, a few old aircraft lying about that people like I myself and and similar-minded people thought were too good to lose, but we lost them. In the um, uh, playground of a disused school, Plymouth, of course, was very heavily bombed during the war, and one of the schools was never rebuilt, and it was used as a civil defence training ground to practice rescues and firefighting and such like. They had a Sea Hornet, 
TT-187, which was the prototype PR-22, I seem to remember, complete, up against a wall with its tail up on the wall, uh, by today's standard, an easy restoration project. But that was, um, that was the bonfire on November the 5th, one year, end of the last virtually intact Sea Hornet. There was an Oxford DF-407, which was, I think, one of the last to serve. Certainly not one of the last to be built. A lot more were built afterwards, but DF-407 was still in the Navy, still coming into Robra, um, and then one day swung on takeoff and went through a hedge. I still have the propeller tip, which uh, came off, or wooden propeller. But again, uh, it's got a broken propeller. Um, that's too difficult. That was another bonfire night, bonfire. Uh, it's easy to regret it now, but at least we saved some things. Well, um, in those days, you could walk around the hills, uh, particularly in Wales and Scotland. The number of aircraft that crashed on the high ground in England is truly phenomenal. I don't know the definitive figures, but somewhere in the order of 900 in the Lake District, several thousand in Wales, um, several thousand too in Scotland. The reason being that training took place away from the fighting areas, and it so happened that the fighting areas had all the good terrain, uh, whereas the western side of the islands is, is the high ground, and that's where these aircraft came to rest. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes with the loss of all lives, but surprisingly often uh, with some very surprised airmen climbing out of the wreckage wow. and wandering downhill, wondering just where on earth they were. <laughs> because their map said there was no ground over 100 feet there, and yet they were at 3,000 feet scat with scattered aeroplane all around them. <laughs> and uh, those bits have progressively gone, but um, there were lots and lots of Ansons. Wellingtons, um, the odd Lancaster. The only German aircraft I found was a Heinkel 111, uh, which I located in the mist, and it was quite eerie. Could hardly see 25 yards, but just the the Junkers Humor engines with very characteristic exhaust stacks, just lying on their side on the hilltop. Um, they've gone now, of course. But there's still some around. If you go to Lundy Island off Devon, there are two Heinkel 111 crash sites there, and there are still bits there. Right. And nothing has ever grown because the toxicity of the burning aluminium has, has made it absolutely infertile. Right. So were you doing these um, treks into the hills with friends or just by yourself, or was there a group? In the age of health and safety, I'm afraid I cannot comment further. <laughs> I was normally up there on my own in bad weather. Um, nobody else was stupid enough to go, and it's you cannot promise anybody anything. You, I love being in the hills, so I'm happy. Yeah. Um, and if you happen to find a small piece of bent aluminium, I was extremely happy. Yeah. But other people don't see it quite that way. <laughs> Before I left school, so we're now talking the early 60s, various um, uh, events come to mind. 
Uh, one was a visit to RAF Lynham. I was in a group called the Plymouth Aircraft Recognition Group. We literally were professional spotters. <laughs> um, and apart from practicing aircraft recognition, and that's an extremely useful skill for nothing, um, there was a visit, for example, to RAF Lynham to see the then rather shiny comets, Comet 4s, which were uh, in service. Yep. Beside Lynham was, from memory, 33MU, but one of the maintenance units. The only time I've ever seen aircraft piled six high. They were all meteors, all engineless, all piled up on top of each other, all being melted down for scrap. Um, and of course, some of the airframes would have been quite significant. Yes. Uh, one of them was, it was the prone pilot meteor, which I remember seeing there. Oh, yeah. But that was saved, and that's now in the RAF Museum at Cosford. Right. Uh, but it very nearly went the way of, of so many others, despite being a unique aircraft yeah. and a, a dead end of research that seemed like a good idea at the time, but wasn't. Right. And up in the control tower, uh, lovely to see the sweep across the airfield and uh, spotted something on the far boundary and said, what's that? And the air traffic controller handed me a pair of binoculars and I said, that's a horser. And he said, correct. Scan right and left. There were eight horses. Wow. Um, when I say horses, uh, it's the well-known fuselage with a rather unusually shaped bulkhead at each end where the nose uh, um, swings for load, nose or the tail? Tail blows off, but the nose swings, I think. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, but there's, there's a particular shape to the bulkhead, and if you've seen it once, then you recognize it. And these were just farm sheds. Yep. Sadly, most of them failed to survive, but some did, and the ones I saw would include the ones now in the Army Air Corps Museum at, um, at Middle Wallop. Um, another visit was to RAF St. Morgan, playing around in the Shackleton 3s. Um, I had a special affinity for the Shackleton and that came back in later life, but in um, the southwest of England there were lots of them and they were so stately and they sounded so wonderful. Yeah. And the memory of sitting on Cape Cornwall, which is a, a rounded peak uh, which protrudes out of Cornwall to the west in the evening and hearing quiet evening saying, is that a shack? Not sure. Yeah, it is. And then gradually, and they don't fly very fast, <laughs> gradually the sound getting louder and louder and louder until you can see an aircraft and it's flying out of the sun straight up the sunlit streak across the sea until finally it goes straight over the top of you at 200 feet. That's just unforgettable. Yeah, um, and it was choreographed just for me. The position of the sun was just absolutely perfect. Brilliant. Memories like that are wonderful. In fact, I, going back, that is actually my first aviation memory of being put on a hedge by my father who was very good about my strange interests. Um, and looking over the hedge, and I can remember three great grey whales in a field on the other side. And in retrospect, those would have been Shackleton Mark 1s, yep. um, probably 
1952-53, just when they were going into service okay. as the latest thing. <laughs> well, um, oh, another visit to mention was Manadon Royal Engineering College. They taught all the engineers for the Royal Navy to degree level and they had a number of airframes. Um, one of them was the prototype DH-110, which of course led to the Sea Vixen XF-828. Uh, that was there. Um, one of them was a swordfish, which they used to show primary, secondary and tertiary structure, painted yeah. them different colours. And that was incredibly instructive. You could see the strength of the aircraft in one colour, you could see the shape of the aircraft in another colour, and the final, fit, final trimmings in a third colour and it was just so instructive and luckily that did survive that's now the, one of the ones in the Fleet Air Arm Museum now rebuilt to um, uh, simulate a proper swordfish HS618 you can always remember the useless things name where I live not a chance but <laughs> that was HS618 there was the tale of a um, tempest Beautiful condition, uh, just the rear monocoque to Izzy Strait monocoque construction, and I hope that still exists. And a Seafire 47. Well, that Seafire 47 went to the Air Training Corps locally, and then just as I was about to leave school, um, <coughs> I joined a group known as the Historical Aircraft Preservation Society. It was way before its time, it was a group of Air Britain members, but not officially part of Air Britain. Yeah. And they wanted to save historic airframes. And there were lots around. Um, it didn't survive. It folded after about 10 years. But I'm still proud that we saved some significant airframes which would not exist today, but, but for what we did. Yeah. One of those, of course, was a Lancaster, the uh, close relative of the one in Motat. Okay. We got NX611 by writing to France, dear France, can we have a Lancaster? Getting no reply, <laughs> and then a year later, having a phone call from Mascot, Sydney. I think Mascot's in Sydney. Yeah. Um, and uh, somebody said it's de Havilland, Australia, or whatever here. Whatever, what would you like us to do with your Lancaster? Um, Pardon? <laughs> the French have just delivered a Lancaster and asked us to give you a call. <laughs> so, from no planning, um, it was, oh my God. Uh, but money was raised, mostly in Australia, to the eternal credit of the Aussies, they raised all the money to get the aircraft out of their country. Yeah. Um, and it came home with some... Um, Gold Coast and Surface Paradise stickers on it and Shell put some money up, uh, still in its white maritime markings. Yep. Flown back to Biggin Hill, I was there when it arrived and that was an emotional moment. And we got that aircraft repainted, we got it flying and we flew it probably 11 times. But we just didn't have the resources or the money. Yep. Uh, but it was back in England and after a chequered career, it is now the one at East Kirkby. And with luck and a lot of money, it will fly again within a few years. Right, and that's just Jane. That's just Jane. Right. So how many people were involved in your um, preservation society? 
There was no membership. Uh, there was no membership fee. There was no membership list. You were a member by thought. If you wanted to be, you were. Yep. And we all wrote to each other, and there were about 20 of us. Okay. But we acquired um, the offer of an ex-RAF F-86 Sabre, which was then serving in the Italian Air Force, and the RAF Museum still lack a genuine ex-RAF Sabre. Yeah. Um, sadly, we didn't get it home, and I have no idea what happened to it. Uh, but we got several bits of hawser, enough to make an aircraft, and that is now um, in the Army Air Corps Museum. The Sabre, we saved the last Walrus, L2301, which was just a fuselage at an airfield called Tame, lying on its side, no wings, had a tail. We put it upright, we towed it, we stored it, and within a year or two the Fleet Air Arm Museum was formed. It wouldn't have been formed in time, they were about to scrap the Walrus. Right. So we um, said, look what we've got. And they said, thank you very much. Uh, there was a, we were involved peripherally with a Corsair that's now at Fleet Air Arm Museum. And the Seafire was near me. I was the only member in the Southwest. So when we were given that one, it was mine. Uh, it was being vandalized terribly. So um, in the way of 16-year-olds, I found a spanner and a screwdriver and probably only one of each. And I removed everything from it that could be removed, uh, with the result that under my bed were the undercarriage doors, the elevators, various panels, cockpit fittings, all sorts of things. And again, um, I, I think I was the first person ever to know what that aircraft was. It's quite surprising. In those days, really historic aircraft were around, and nobody had idea, any idea which one they were. Right. This particular Seafire had VP-476 written on the backing plate to the propeller. The propeller was removed, uh, so you could clearly see VP-476, and everybody yep. said, that's the one. I got some sandpaper out and had a go at the rear fuselage, and after a little bit of gentle work, VP-441 appeared. And that was actually the airframe. The propeller backing plate was... Um, a robbed part from somewhere else. Right. right. Eventually, that aircraft went to America, and it's the one that's finally flying at Breckenridge in the uh, Western States. And at the same time, I applied for a flying scholarship and went to RAF Biggin Hill, which is where they did the aircrew selection and therefore the flying scholarship selection, to get a PPL on the state. I actually failed that for alleged colour blindness, but that's another story. Um, but we were there for two or three days, and in the evening, one of the um, staff came round and said, I'm going to open up the um, Luftwaffe hangar. Do you want to come in? The answer was not no. <laughs> uh, so there in a fairly dark hangar, just parked, dripping oil, Nothing around them, just as if it was an operational hangar, was Junkers 88, ME 110, ME 109, Heikel 111, um, and some other aircraft, I forget which. And we were just given free reign, you know, sit in this cockpit, play with that control. Uh, it was wonderful. And again, I knew they were there, 
but nobody uh, amongst the aviation enthusiasts knew which particular aircraft they were. They knew the type, but not the identity. So um, I was able to have a look, particularly at the Messerschmitt 109, uh, and work out that it was an E4B, which was a start, because I could find the um, mountings for the bomb racks under the wings. And also, by careful use of a torch and an angle, could actually read the RAF serial number, which had been painted over. And memory fails. I'm fairly sure it was DG200. But anyway, it was the ME109, which was actually captured by the French in France. And then, um, just about at the time of the fall of France, flown to England and evaluated by what became 1426 enemy aircraft flight. And eventually was preserved. But by the time it was preserved and repainted, nobody knew what it was, identity-wise. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, it was great to be the only person who knew that. But of course, that night, no email. That night, lots of letters. Guess what I found out? It was great. Um, with the exception of the Sabre, every aircraft that we acquired still exists. And they probably wouldn't. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad memory at all. Well, that's fantastic. What do you think is 20 enthusiasts scattered around the country? Uh, and uh, did you fundraise to get these things, or did you just ask them you were given them, or...? Um, there was some fundraising to try and fly the Lancaster, yeah. but essentially uh, we just bore the expenses ourselves. Whoever did it paid for it. Right. You, you hired a trailer, or you, yep. you wrote a letter, or whatever. But on the other hand, if you hire a trailer and get a walrus for it, then, you know... Well, uh, it was also £150. I'd like to point out it was expensive yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know to have that opportunity we appreciated it most people didn't then. Right. Right. Uh, but you know it's great to um, to have done it and following on from that because the aircraft ended up in the Fleet Air Arm Museum some of them the Walrus uh, then there was an invite to attend the Fleet Air Arm Review uh, I could have looked up the date, but for a person with a sort of numerical interest aircraft, it was absolute Valhalla. Yeah. It was not open to the public, so there were some sort of crowd barriers, but not really. And the entire fleet air arm flew that day in front of the Duke of Edinburgh. Every aircraft that could be got into the air somehow did. and. I think the number was around 400. Then they formed up and the planning was meticulous because Swordfish was in over the airfield boundary and there was nothing within a few miles of it. When they went past the saluting dais in the Duke of Edinburgh, the Swordfish was in the lead by 100 metres and lower than everything else. By the time it had left the airfield, it was last. It had been overtaken by 400 aircraft. And every succeeding formation had a higher speed, pretty much. So they had to break left, right, up, down as a group. Um, And absolute controlled chaos. Then they came back and landed, and you would see them come in and 
park by serial number. So looking at the scimitars, you'd see XD-225, XD-226, XD-227, XD-229. Ah, 228's crashed then. Um, but the entire production run was there, less losses. Uh, and some of the aircraft, I don't know the truth of the details, but I'm sure some of the aircraft were flying in a condition which would have given a lot of grey hairs these days. <laughs> yeah. But you will fly that aircraft today. Um, and that's the one you've got, lump it. <laughs> Great day. Did you have a camera with you that day? No. <laughs> I had a little mini tape recorder, dictaphone, um, and I no longer have the tapes. It's, it's a historic occasion that's well recorded yes. and would have been recorded to a far better quality than myself. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'm sorry, I don't have a photograph to show. Right. Right. Well, I left school, um, didn't get thrown out, left it, uh, and I'd applied to do a year's voluntary service overseas, which was a new idea then, right. 1965. And until the very last moment, uh, I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. But um, apparently I was down to work on a farm in East Africa, which would have been lovely. But then at the very last notice, at uh, the very last moment, I was said, you're going to work on a medical team in Laos, uh, because I was going to university to study medicine afterwards, so that was appropriate. Right. And like everybody else, I said, where's Laos? <laughs> uh, but it was on the map, they were right, it does exist. Yep. It was an unknown country then, um, founded on the map and set off to Laos and I wasn't alone in my ignorance. When I checked in at Heathrow, um, uh, the uh, receptionist or hostess or whoever said, Laos, which part of Thailand's that in? <laughs> no, <laughs> now that I'm an expert, it's its own country. And in those days, of course, she gathered a group of people and um, said, follow me. And we walked out into the sunshine, which was a rare event in itself. And we walked across the tarmac and clambered up some steps and strapped ourselves into a Boeing 707. Um, GAPFE, the captain was very pleased to let me be in the cockpit, flying over Turkey for an hour. Wow. Uh, and then the aircraft went on to Hong Kong, that particular service. It did the same thing three months later, flew past Mount Fuji to give people a better view of the mountain, because again, pilots could do it in those days, request diversion over Mount Fuji. Struck turbulence and the fin came off. And uh, nobody survived, of course. There, that was the first, I think, 707 lost by um, British Overseas Airways as it then was. Uh, so I just wonder what shape the Finns bar was in when I was in it. The reason I was in the 707, of course, was to get out to Laos. We flew from Bangkok to the capital Laos, Vientiane, in the evening in the monsoon in a Dakota. It's the only time I've had to put um, a raincoat on inside an aircraft <laughs> because the water was pouring in through the roof. Um, but, you know, a Dakota's a Dakota. <laughs> they cope with things like that. Even more fun was going to the toilet, which was a distinctly crude affair, but the 
bulkhead access door behind the toilet was missing. So you could sit there looking past the tailwheel into the rainforest below, <laughs> yeah, better known as jungle. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that far below, but it was really quite funny to be sitting there and uh, <laughs> looking at this going past underneath. Uh, <clears throat> when we arrived in Vientiane, uh, I didn't know what was going on there. The world didn't know. It was called the Secret War. But um, we came into land and looking out I could see uh, providers, Dakotas, commandos, all sorts of aircraft which were quite rare even then and I realised that this was going to be a year to remember. Yeah. And it was indeed. Um, I have written it up for the aviation historian but uh, you know a couple of incidents one um, again the versatility of the Dakota watching a Dakota being used as a dive bomber with a 50 gallon drum of petrol um, being launched out the back by somebody kicking it with two thermite grenades attached to it so that as it hits the ground um, it explodes into a ball of flame. The idea was to try and um, dislodge a North Vietnamese force who were holed up in a cave at the foot of the cliff. So this aircraft came down from a thousand feet to 200 feet um, and a sharp climbing turn out of the dive to miss the mountain and pull away but the drum missed by miles, it was not the way to do it, but, but the aircraft was game to have a go. <laughs> and in fact, um, another Dakota incident, we had one come into land at one of the airstrips which were very short, and um, the pilot undershot and the undercarriage folded backwards on the lip. I don't know if Donald Douglas designed it this way, but if that happens, the wheels are still clear of the wing and they turn and this aircraft ran along on its wheels, on its belly. Wow. And even more importantly, it slithered off the side of the strip a bit. So once the dust had settled, it needed um, two new engines and propellers and repairs to the undercarriage because the radius rod had been pushed up through the wing. Um, all of this I do have lots of photographic evidence of. Yeah. So. The Lao were able to take one outer wing off, which cleared the actual airstrip. Another Dakota flew in two um, engines, one at a time, and whatever else was required. And using good old sheer legs and block and tackle, uh, we removed the engines, changed them, jacked the aircraft up. Um, and two weeks later, I think, it flew out. It flew out without cowlings on, and it flew out with a large dent in the wing where it had hit a tree, a large <laughs> hole in the wing where it had hit a tree. Uh, and the undercarriage was not locked down, it was welded down. <laughs> but um, it got airborne, and it was flown like that to the Air America base in Thailand at um, uh, Udon, Udon Thani. And they uh, returned it to service after full repair. A wonderful aeroplane. The, um, well, the other memory uh, of that cave and those North Vietnamese, of course, was T-28s dive bombing and strafing straight over our heads. 
it was a bit like a, a show that you didn't even have to book a ticket. Um, you could drive out to a safe dis distance away and then you could advance along a safe line through the bush um, all the time hearing the shells going over the head, overhead, just a little <laughs> as they go past and then crump as they explode. But uh, I don't think any of them were killed until the final battle and, and most of them were captured. There were very few casualties, which was the way it was between the Vietnamese and the Lao. Lots of noise and as fewer casualties as possible. Right. If you make the most noise, you win. <laughs> uh, and uh, another sort of did this really happen event was, I was always trying to fly in the choc tours, the UH-34Ds that Air America had. Yeah. They were just olive drab, ex-US Marine Corps in Vietnam, and again, you could work out their previous markings if you looked at them at the right angle to try and see what was under the paint. Yeah. Uh, but they carried no identity apart from H followed by a number. Uh, mostly, well, they were all working for the CIA, uh, and mostly they were doing things that even I wasn't allowed to go on, although they were pretty free and easy with what they did allow me to do. Um, but one afternoon I was free and uh, saw one of the Americans who was going and said I could could I bum a ride and he didn't hesitate he said yeah sure come so he was up in the left-hand seat up the top um, a civilian in theory Air America pilot in the right-hand seat Air American kicker down below with me we headed off east towards the Annamite Mountains, which are beautiful limestone mountains that separate Laos from Vietnam. The job, I discovered, was to resupply the colonel. The colonel, and he may well have been a lieutenant or whatever, was a Japanese stay-behind. He wasn't the last of them, but he was one of the last of them because this was 1966. He had gone bush at the end of the war and um, by the time the Americans found him, or he contacted the Americans, their attitude was more or less, yes, you're right, the war's over, about 10 years ago, actually, um, but we've got another one on our hands now, and you've got skills, because this man had lived uh, not by stealing from villages or whatever, <clears throat> he had lived off the land for 10 or more years. Well, it had to be more like 20 years, wouldn't it? 1945 to 65? 65, he was, was when I met him. Yeah. But I think he'd been working for the Americans for a long time. Ah, I see, yep. yep. I don't know. Yep. I don't know. He was certainly extraordinarily well fed. And in fact, he was overweight. It is possible to be obese on a survivor's diet. <laughs> um, but he'd been with the Americans for a number of years. Uh, he'd have been obviously the perfect instructor at a jungle survival course, but they wanted him to have somebody sitting on the cast, the limestone peaks, uh, over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The Ho Chi Minh Trail doesn't exist, of course. It utilizes a number of um, existing roads which are marked on maps, but it's mainly a network of paths and tracks. Um, and by taking the right turnings, it's possible to get even a vehicle the whole length of Laos from North Vietnam down through Cambodia and into South Vietnam. 
But he was moving around and observing. He had all the skills to um, approach the camps where they stopped at night, uh, where they stopped by day. Sorry, they travelled by night. Uh, and I'm sure gave the Americans incredibly invaluable uh, intelligence. Purpose of our mission was to take him more batteries for his radio, and to take him um, stationary. Uh, you know, it's the sort of stationary warehouse delivery run yeah. of uh, notepads and biros, effectively. Right. No food. Um, that wasn't required. Right. <laughs> he knew where to get that. Uh, well, the idea was to land in a certain abandoned paddy field in a valley deep in the mountains, be there 30 seconds and be gone. But it didn't work out that way. As we circled down, the pilot didn't bank and if you don't bank, you lose the sensation of turning. You feel you're stationary and the world is turning around you. Of course, when you suddenly straighten up, as he did to fly between two trees to touch down, you get a sensation of turning the other way. And he gave into that sensation. And I just sat in the doorway in absolute disbelief as he steered us straight into a tree. The blades hit about five meters from the top of the tree where it was about um, 15, 20 centimetres thick. Uh, so I now know that that's what a rotor blade can do because it went straight through. Yep. However, the top of the tree was dragged down through the rotor, which destroyed it into a mass of matchwood and dust. The dust was from the nests of a particularly ferocious red ant that lived in the tree <clears throat> and our fuselage was now full of all this rubbish and some very angry ants. Uh, I, I thought I'd play the brave person and nipped off to the edge of the clearing because I reckoned I would hear um, uh, small arms fire uh, before they would because they were near the aircraft. So whilst I bravely lay in a ditch, on the edge of the clearing. Then uh, the pilot turned the rotor a quarter of a turn at a time and the kicker climbed up on the horizontal stabilizer and examined each blade as it stopped by him. Yeah. And it was clearly visible that two of them were bent and the third one was dented, but um, the fourth one was undamaged seemingly, but the opinion of the kicker was, yes, it'll hold together. Um, and the other deciding factor, of course, was that because we were in a valley that was 3,000 feet deep and not a lot more than 3,000 foot wide, it was virtually vertical-sided, yeah. then um, we had to go if we could. So uh, with the minimum time spent on the ground, during which time the Japanese gave me a great welcome by crushing me in a bear hug, <laughs> it was time to say goodbye and we got back in and we flew home. And if you think a helicopter vibrates when it's serviceable, I'll tell you it vibrates a lot more when it's not. Uh, but we got back. How, how, how far did you have to fly back with it? Um, About 30 minutes. Wow. It was not a short flight. And, and was every minute of that pretty terrifying, waiting for the blade to come off? Or? Well, no. Um, it was to start with, yeah. because it was like sitting on a, a jackhammer. Yeah. But once you'd been flying again for 10 minutes or so, it hasn't happened. Right. So it probably won't happen. 
Um, and we got back without a problem, but the very same aircraft disappeared a few, year, a few days later. Um, nobody knew where it was or what it was doing, but it disappeared. Uh, but luckily the crew reappeared um, <clears throat> after walking through the bush jungle for a few days. They weren't badly hurt, but the aircraft was lost. So just um, let me clarify, you were there as a volunteer with a civilian organisation? Yes. And um, what was that? Was this Red Cross or...? Um, the organisation was Colombo Plan, which okay. involves New Zealand and Australia. Um, it dates from a meeting in Colombo in Ceylon, as it then was, Sri Lanka, during which the nations of Southeast Asia, with Great Britain as grandma, got together and said, we'll do the best we can to help each other. And each country provided assistance, mainly of personnel, to uh, a country which required it. Right. Um, it was more a matter of people rather than money, although there was money involved for, um, for relief as well. But it wasn't um, a famine relief or anything like that. It was an ongoing, I think by then, 20-year-old project. Right. Um, and I was part of that aid. So did the, did the Colombo organisation have any idea that they were sending you into the strangest war zone in the world at the time? And did they know what they were putting you into? They were horrified when they found out. But I made sure they didn't find out until afterwards. Right. <laughs> so you were quite happy to be there. This, yeah, I was very happy to be there. <laughs> um, what I would love to have but I don't have, is a copy of the Bangkok newspaper which tells the world that our medical team has been wiped out in a North Vietnamese attack. Oh. As uh, um, uh, the well-known American said, um, you know, the, the uh, reports of my death are exaggerated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a, a famous quote and I just cannot remember who, although I know who I want to remember. Uh, yeah, th there was actually a, a newspaper article saying that the place we were working was overrun and, and a dozen Europeans had been killed and all the rest of it. I'd love to have a, a copy of that. Yeah, yeah. It might be in the file somewhere. Yeah. Um, but no, they were horrified and uh, I, I was incredibly lucky because um, people weren't allowed to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of actual medical work were you doing? Was it just looking after villages or...? Uh, it was varied. There, in the place I was, which was called Tarkek or Kamoan, which is about halfway down Laos, or almost directly opposite the demilitarised zone in um, Vietnam, there was a derelict or very run-down old hospital. Yeah. So the team was a doctor and myself, uh, and his remit was obviously to provide medical care and between us, we were to supervise the rebuild of the hospital, which was done with Colombo Plan money, yeah. uh, make sure it was built and not misappropriated, and so on and so forth. Wonderful, practical experience, yeah. straight out of school and, and being a what would now be a project manager on a fairly major civil engineering um, project. But it was great. By the time I left, uh, the hospital was considerably renovated and the care for the um, locals was 
uh, really good. And yes, we did go out into the villages. That was purely because both the doctor and I were very um, much in favour of getting to know the place. Yep. So with the excuse of a few crates of drugs in the back, then we'd go and do clinics in the various villages and we'd have people queue up, huge queues of people waiting to be treated. But there was a, a lot of very basic treatable illness, um, a lot of intestinal infestation that we could treat, yep. um, malaria, uh, people uh, with leprosy. We couldn't treat them, but I took two lepers um, several hundred miles in the Land Rover, and there's no doubt about it, even if you know that leprosy is not contagious in the sense of sitting across the table as you and I are, yeah. there's a, a feeling of, I don't quite like this, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> when they get in the Land Rover with you and spend the next day there. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what the job is about. Um, and the thing about a leper colony, of course, is that these people are completely shunned in their own community. But in a leper colony, they're, they're amongst their own and they can be given um, aid as required, but they can form their own community, which functions like any other community. Okay. Because the vast majority of them are fully able. It's just that um, they're essentially incurable, although we, you know, it's, it's getting increasingly possible to treat, but it wasn't easily treated then. Yeah. And it can only be done under supervision. It requires drug taking for years um, and nobody will take nasty tasting tablets for years just because you tell them it's going to make you better eventually yeah. <laughs> so it has to be done under um, almost regimentation right but it's it's great to be able to do it so we did do a lot of temporary good but it was only temporary good yeah. everybody that we cured of intestinal parasites would have had them again in a month and so on and so forth right anyway we tried. Yeah, oh, well done. Well, back to the aeroplanes. <laughs> back to the aeroplanes. Yes. Um, one thing, of course, every time I was out in the country, I was just hoping that I would stumble across that complete Japanese zero. Yeah. Uh, I failed to do so. But our airstrip had actually been used by a Japanese Army Air Force unit during the war. Okay. So it was nice to stand on a place which had that sort of historic connection yeah absolutely um, and uh, when I had some time off uh, I again managed to hitch a ride with Air America and then actually have to pay to fly with Royal Air Lao to get to Saigon oh, because yeah. you know if you're that close to Saigon you don't say no yeah. um, and uh, on um, on the Air America Skytrain, I met somebody who knew me and he said, Hi John, what are you doing? Oh, I'm off to Saigon. Yeah, what? <laughs> and he tells the whole aeroplane, Bloody limeys, he's going to Saigon as a volunteer. <laughs> but it was a great flight in a C-54, the actual flight into Vietnam. Very poor weather. Um, before we took off, I noticed the crew pulling and pushing on the number three propeller. Um, and uh, I discovered why when we got airborne, there's a trail of black smoke poured out the back. 
<laughs> but apparently it was within their engineering tolerations, uh, tolerances. So we, we just smoked our way to Saigon. Um, and in cloud, an unforgettable memory of uh, a sky radar it just appeared and disappeared, flying at 90 degrees. But the memory is that I just saw, well, mainly saw the port wingtip. And under the port wing, I saw a thousand pound bomb and I could count the number of um, blades on the arming vane. And I think they're about three centimeters long. Wow, so that's so very close. Terribly far away. <laughs> and there was a great big fin just behind me. Uh, but then looking down, because obviously one knew a lot about Vietnam in, in the press in those days, when the weather cleared, looking down and seeing an airstrip with caribou and helicopters on it and, and the dust around it, I thought, you know, I've arrived at history. Yeah. And it was wonderful to be there um, in a, a sad, happy sort of a way. Um, I love Southeast Asia, I love Vietnam and Laos. Um, and I'm so glad it's now settled down to be, once again, a, a happy place. What were those Air America guys like? Very human, very normal. Yeah. Um, they came in two groups, really, with not much in between. Um, some of them were uh, really running an airline business. They were flying the milk runs into Dakotas and commandos, providers, and they were fairly much going from a known airfield to another known airfield with reasonable navigation, and they rarely got shot at. There were others who were completely um, outside the rule of law, yeah. uh, the so-called A-team on the T-28s, the Trojans. They, um, against all international law, were civilians flying armed aircraft um, uh, on offensive missions. Yeah. And the Americans relied on the A-team to get an American pilot out of trouble. They could be there first and give suppressive fire uh, until a helicopter could get there to, to pick the man out. The B-team was the Thai Air Force pilots and the C team was the Lao Air Force pilots right. who were trusted only when it was necessary to bomb a mountain and it didn't matter if it was the wrong mountain. <laughs> but um, the A team, they, they actually formed unofficially because uh, they went into action without any permission. They just grabbed the aircraft and went uh, to try and rescue uh, a prominent Thai. He was the son or nephew of the Thai Prime Minister, and he was flying one of the one of the Thai pilots. There were plenty of them um, flying the Lao T-28s, and he was shot down. Um, and some Americans just took some T-28s to go and give him some support. Um, not really to give him some support. It was actually the Air America helicopter that was trying to rescue him that they were trying to support. Yeah. Air America was not a rescue organisation but it was all over the place and speed was of the essence. So if an American aircraft was down or an Air America aircraft was down in Laos, then Air America immediately mobilized. And again, I, I've written this up, the, um, the um, forces they could mobilize to save some of their own 
um, an H-34 went down. Uh, no idea quite where, no radio message, just disappeared. Within hours, they had 37 aircraft on the search. Wow. Um, and that included armed T-28s, um, lots of surveillance aircraft. It included a C-123, which they managed to find, as you do, yep. a full complement of Thai paratroopers to secure the area once they found it. Yep. And many other assets. Um, they found the aircraft the next day and there were no survivors. But they put absolutely every effort into it and that's what they expected of their own. Uh, that was the highest possible priority. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so you were there for a year and... I was there for a year and then came back to the world and it was quite a readjustment, I can assure you. Um, but back to the world, off to university, um, very luckily managed to get the Air Force to teach me to fly in the chipmunk on the University Air Squadron. Nice. Having proven to them that I wasn't actually colourblind at Biggin Hill, the doctor was. Ah. And uh, because of that, he did it by rote and he got it wrong. Um, I had actually got it right. And the funny thing is that he had passed at least one colourblind pilot. I could give you a name, but obviously I won't, because I met him in later life. He by then was a lightning pilot, totally colourblind. And um, this wasn't discovered until the doctor was discovered. And they went back through the records and checked up on everybody that he'd looked at the colour vision of. Because colour vision is only ever checked once. Oh. It's extremely rare to um, lose colour vision uh, there are some very rare illnesses that cause loss of colour vision, but it's almost unheard of. Yeah. So you have one check at the initial medical, and that is it for your career. Right. Um, but all, all of his uh, candidates were weeded out and re-examined, and this chap was totally colourblind. And so they said, you can't fly, you're colourblind. How exactly was it I got that lightning up and after a bear and down yesterday because yeah. I can't fly and common sense prevailed the country had spent what would today be two million pounds on training him yes. he was thoroughly competent and highly rated at his job okay fine if we just say here is colorblind but allowed to fly <laughs> then um, carry on <laughs> but it was quite dare I say it, quite an eye-opener. <clears throat> Had I passed that medical, I'd have joined the RAF and quite possibly, ten years later, I'd have left quite disillusioned yeah. and gone and done something far more interesting than aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. But not getting in left the nibbling at the edge, I want more of this, carrying on through life. So my, my logbook has got a couple of thousand hours of service flying in it and a lot more other flying in it with at the last count just over 100 different types wow um, not all handled yeah. but a fair number yeah uh, so i count myself as very lucky yeah definitely well uh fast forward uh medical school doctor off to australia uh, 
that was very pleasant. Queensland um, offered a job in Brisbane, and at the end of that job, um, my boss happened to be the president of the Royal Fly Flying Doctor Association of, or Royal Flying Doctor Service of Queensland. So he said, we have a need for a three-month locum. Interested? It was another of those sort of no-brainers. Yep. <laughs> so I was off to um, Cairns, and uh, we had a Queen Air, two Queen Airs actually, and we covered the whole of Cape York and a lot of land into the Gulf of Carpentaria and towards Darwin. Um, 600 by 400 miles, not 24,000 square miles because of the shape of the land, but I think it was about 6,000 square miles. Um, and a place of great interest, again, to an aviation enthusiast. My pilot pointed out to me that every airfield that we used on the coast had a mirror airfield about 10 miles inland, right. which was built, uh, I say built, it was just bulldozed as a backup, yep. so that if the Japanese took the coastal airfield, which would obviously be a prime target, then nearby was another, hopefully not very visible, um, airfield that they could fall back to and continue operations without, um, without delay. Uh, most of those were disused. We did actually use one of them, and it was rather nice to land on it and think, this is history. Um, also landed at Iron Range, which was the third airfield built at Iron Range. They took time to get it right. <laughs> um, the, the, the first airfield was easy to build, but they knew it could only be, I think, 600 metres. So they quickly made a 600 metre airstrip, which could take DH-84s and similar aircraft. So they now had communications and then uh, all the equipment came in by sea uh, uh, with the airstrippers air communication and that built the so-called definitive airstrip which was big, um, I don't know, we're probably talking 2,000 metres. Uh, probably about the time they finished it they discovered that actually it was covered in fog every morning. <laughs> so airstrip number three <laughs> was then built, and that's the one that's still in use today. By airstrip number two, even when I was there, they were, there was a P-40, which today flies. Wow. If I'd known, I'd have gone and looked at it. Yeah. But it was in good enough condition to be one of the many that had been recovered and um, uh, uh, got back to flying condition. Yeah. There was an article not that long ago in one of the Australian magazines about Australia's most secret airfield. I didn't know it was Australia's most secret airfield, but I was delighted to read the story of it because I was familiar with it. Right, right. Um, and another place we stopped overnight was Normanton. And me being well known by now, people said, you've got to go and see the uh, B-25. Pardon? Did you say the B-25? Oh yeah, down on the beach. So down to the beach and there was the wingtip of a B-25 sticking out of the shingle. Right. Um, the story was that four of them took off from Brisbane 
I'm sure this story is not quite the official report, but it was the navigational instructions were clear, concise, accurate, and to the point. Keep the green on the left and the blue on the right. <laughs> so they kept the green on the left and the blue on the right. But the missing part of the instruction was, when you reach Cape Horn, get blue on both sides until you see green in front of you. And then you can find Port Moresby and land. All four of them turned round Cape Horn, and if you know the shape of it, that's a pretty sharp turn. It's about 160 degrees. Um, it's not the sort of map reading area you'd expect anybody but the Americans to make. Um, and now they were going for a circumnavigation of Australia, which was probably beyond the capability of a B-25. Part of the way down the Gulf of Carpentaria, they progressively ran out of fuel. And when I was there, all four were still where they landed. The one that I saw um, put down on the beach, out of fuel, they clambered out, walked up, off the beach, onto the grass, and looked and went, oh, god damn it. They had landed beside and exactly parallel to and 100 yards from a fully serviceable airstrip, <laughs> to which they could have probably made a wheels down landing, but certainly a belly landing in a situation where the aircraft could have been recovered and flown out quite easily. Yeah. But the aircraft was just abandoned. So of course I spent all the time I had into the night digging, digging, digging. And I had several meters of wing open by then, uh, exposed. Very good condition, right. considering it was salt water. Um, really an aircraft that, if somebody had actually dug it out, would have made an excellent museum exhibit. Yeah. But on the other hand, if nobody destroys it, if it stays there, in some ways it's even better. You've got to leave some of them behind. You can't bring them all home. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's lovely that there are things like the Black Cat B-17 in New Guinea that, although it's been horrifically damaged, vandalised, if you make the effort, you can go and see it. Yeah. So was that, you, you said Cape, uh, was that Cape York? Or? <laughs> it's been a long day, yeah, Dave. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> It's only the wrong consonant, you know. You are a stickler for accuracy. Well, if you just want to say Cape York a couple of times, I'll edit that in. You can do that, but I honestly think I'd rather you left it yep. and had this um, uh, interlocution. It just shows that the entire facts that I've given you are utterly beyond reproach and will withstand any possible research by future generations. <laughs> yes, the B-25s that rounded Cape Horn, that could be a book. <laughs> it was indeed Cape York, can I? Thank you for picking me up on that. No problem. At another time, I flew from Cape York down to um, Cairns again, low level along the coast, because the pilot, my pilot was a grandmother, Beth Garrett. Um, she had been the wife of a flying doctor pilot on his aircraft with the doctor and his wife and the aircraft crashed on takeoff. Um, Beth's husband was killed and the doctor's wife was killed. Um, it's not that they married or anything romantic like that but Beth decided she was going to avenge fate and from nothing uh, learnt to fly obtained a twin rating and got the required experience. 
the required experience for the Flying Doctor was 5,000 hours pilot-in-command, multi-engined, outback. Right. Not many people can aspire to that. Right. But she had that goal, she was going to achieve it, and she did, and she was a brilliant pilot. But she wanted to show me the bauxite layer, the aluminium oxide that is being mined up there. So we flew along, wingtip along the coast, um, looking at sort of a metre thick there, two metres there, down to a few inches there. Um, and you could see this orange layer on top. And it was all being removed progressively. The top was being taken off and carefully transported round to the back and put back several feet lower after the bauxite had been removed from underneath it. Uh, and I do remember vividly on that trip having to lift up over a small fishing boat to <laughs> stay alive and, uh, and having to pull up sharply to get into the circuit at Cairns. Um, but that's a diversion. Whilst I was there, I discovered the Queensland Air Museum, right. which was then five acres of paddock beside um, Eagles Farm, the international airport. Uh, and in it was that sort of Valhalla that still existed in those days of a rusting Anson frame and a vampire in bits and a camera and so on and so forth. It was then on its third home, I think, and today it's been to several more sites. And its future, as far as its location, is still, I believe, not absolutely certain. Uh, it won't go under, but they might have to move again. But Ron Koskelly was running it, and he's still there. Yeah. Well, I must go and see him. But we had some wonderful aeroplanes, and we moved a Canberra by night through Brisbane to get it to the new site. When we'd done so, and this is a bunch of amateurs, we took the tail plane off, the horizontal stabiliser, we took the rear fuselage off, and then we put it sideways, and then we took the nose off, and then we put the centre section of the wing sideways on a low loader with the wing right up over the cab and out in front, about 30 foot off the ground, and drove through Brisbane at night in foul weather, yeah. um, with all the electricity lines having to be disconnected and lowered by the power company, and then reconnected after we'd passed by. And we got it there. And not long after that, we got a phone call from Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. We've got to move a camera by road. We've never done that. How do you do it? <laughs> so it was very nice to be asked by the manufacturer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, A85224, um, to be asked by the manufacturer how to move their product. <laughs> because we did it, and we were very proud of doing it. Yeah. And cameras, of course, are like that. You can take the nose off a camera and change the mark. Put the different nose back on and it's a B6 instead of a B8 okay. and so on and so forth uh, or you can make it into a T4 if you feel like it yeah. just got to find the nose right, right. well I suppose that leads to the almost yesterday Gulf War in 1991 right. um, I joined the auxiliary Air Force just before that having incidentally been flying search and rescue since 1970 no 1979, 1980, um, as a civilian, lots of search and rescue aircraft, uh, sorties in uh, Wessex and later seeking, uh, but joined the Auxiliary Air Force, who decided to celebrate the occasion by 
getting Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, we were all uh, going to be called up to go and serve out there. <clears throat> that was fine by us, but we'd actually signed up and told our wives and family and everybody else that we were signing up to serve within the United Kingdom, within 50 miles of home, in fact, uh, in time of a threat to the homeland. Yeah. That was the um, function of the Auxiliary Air Force. However, Royal Auxiliary Air Force. However, they wanted us to volunteer, therefore, to go to the Gulf because calling up reservists immediately implied that the armed forces weren't actually strong enough to do the job alone, that the government weren't supplying them with the money. Uh, we refused. And an air marshal, no less, and the Minister of Defence came down and spoke to us at our base. At one day's notice, all the squadron bar one person turned up and we sat in the cinema. They were up on the stage and they said, please volunteer. And we said, no. And they said, please volunteer. No. And then finally, Bernie Hanks, Sergeant Hanks, lovely chap, stood up and said, Sir, I volunteered when I joined. I knew that things unexpected might happen. That's the nature of an armed service. If I volunteer to now go to Saudi Arabia, and I'll maybe let you into a secret as to how many casualties we expected at the time, because we were briefed on that. If I volunteer to go to Saudi Arabia, and we may not come back, all of us, my job definitely has gone. Possibly my marriage, because my wife didn't expect me to go on to active service without the country really having the wolves at the door. So I'm not going to volunteer. However, sir, it was getting a little bit insolent by now. However, sir, if you don't call me up, I'm resigning. And I rather think everybody else in the room will too. And there was just no answer to that. Right. Um, we received our call-up papers the next day. <laughs> and unlike a regular unit, uh, where when a unit is deployed on active service, 90% is reckoned to be um, a good turnout because of people having unfitnesses or other problems which prevent them from deploying, we deployed 97%. Wow. Uh, which included people who by regular standards were totally unfit to serve, but um, we were our own medical people, obviously. So, all right, Jim, that's a lousy knee you've got, but you wanna go? Yeah. All right, well, if you wanna go, we can keep you on light duties and just promise me that you will stay on light duties. Yeah, of course I will, sir. Right, tick, <laughs> fit to deploy. Yeah. Um, and it was wonderful. It was a great camaraderie, uh, war from a medical aspect, especially one like Gulf One, which was pretty one-sided, um, is wonderful because, as I found in Laos, there are no problems, only solutions. Everybody's pulling on the rope in the same direction. And if you can't solve the problem, somebody will rush over to help you. Um, and the memory from um, Saudi Arabia in 1990, 91, 
with the supply officer coming to me, normally you go to him, yeah. and he said, Doc, I know I won't be able to read your writing, but anything you want, scribble it on a piece of paper, fag packet will do, I'll see you get it. Wow. Um, no formal requisition system at all. You need it, it's on its way. Uh, and to work, it's like a drug of everybody pulling in the same direction and you see the most amazing things happen because so much effort is being put in so efficiently, bureaucracy and rules are out the window. Um, you're probably aware that during the, um, the uh, Falklands War, sorry, wasn't a war, the Falklands conflict, insurance didn't apply if it was a war, uh, the Nimrod was being considered for in-flight refueling uh, and so was the Hercules. Neither were fitted with it and it was expected to be, I think, a three-year program. Yeah. Come the war, as a chap said on television afterwards, we found some pipe in the store over there, found connectors, didn't know they were there but we found them over there. Um, and we flight trialled it and we had five aircraft equipped by the end of the week. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, and we put two sidewinders on the wing as well. <laughs> so the Nimrods carried um, overwing sidewinders. Again, a completely unplanned modification. Well, it may not have been completely unplanned, but they weren't going to get around to it for a time. No. Uh, but the engineers said, we can do it. Just watch us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a week later, the Nimrods were sporting two sidewinders. It's, it's since been decided that the Ministry of Defence Procurement Executive, which still exists I believe, has an immediate reaction to war. It must be disbanded. <laughs> Otherwise the war will not be won. Um, yes, golf won. It was, it was exciting. Um, as you know, we had very few casualties. The number was 47. Uh, most of those were road traffic accidents or similar things. Some of them, sadly, were um, due to munitions, but almost all of those were, were so-called friendly fire, and it was a bit sobering to be involved looking after the British troops who were in the Warrior Armoured Personnel Carrier, um, which was hit by an A-10 with a a Maverick, I think, missile. Um, I was looking after them. Uh, their, their injuries were mainly burns, those that survived. And by the evening, everybody in Saudi Arabia knew it was a, a blue-on-blue friendly fire, except these four men. Right. And we just, you know, we had to face it. We said, well, you know, they're going to have to know. We're going to have to tell them. Yeah. So, Sit down, chaps, I've got something to tell you. Um, and I won't describe the reaction, um, that's medical incompetence, yeah. but um, you know, they, they had to know, but telling them was pretty difficult. Yeah. On the other hand, um, you know, helping people was, was the best part of it, and that's why I say it's nice to be a medic in war, because you help people. In the Gulf War, they did arm us. Um, terrifying, just threw weapons at us and said, catch that. Your arm's qualified now, hang on, which end's which? <laughs> and we couldn't even do any live firing practices in case we started the war. So it all had to be dry drills with um, 
with no live or not even blank ammunition. And then we were signed off as weapons qualified and we carried the damn things. There was there were some good moments and some memorable moments. I suppose the most memorable one was watching the first scud come in. We'd had a scud alert. Um, we'd gone into our shelter, beautifully built by the Royal Engineers. Sandbags to a great thickness, probably two meters, and then steel plates over the top in a, a rabbit warren to support the steel plates, and then another couple of meters of sandbags on top. And they reckoned it would take a thousand pounder direct yeah. and just give us earache. Uh, but the all clear was sounded and we came out and suddenly, middle of the night, an unbelievable bang beside us, which we later learnt was a Patriot going out of its tube. Patriots go supersonic out of the tube, yeah. and this one was 100 yards away. And like all good Patriots, it headed off at 45 degrees or thereabouts and sniffed around at the air and then said, it's over there, and turned 45 degrees in its own length. And a few seconds later, there was the most enormous flash of of night into day. Um, we were told it was 18,000 feet. It's difficult to believe that. It seemed it was very close. But um, the whole of Saudi Arabia was lit up by the flash, and that was the first scud destroyed, so it was rather nice to, nice to witness the event. Uh, there were plenty more after that, and it became a spectator sport against orders to get outside and watch them. I'm afraid that's the way of servicemen. Well, that's actually the Patriots um, then, that just like you were saying before about how things are thrown into service. That was an experimental thing until then, wasn't it? They hadn't actually... I didn't know that. They hadn't actually um, deployed them, and they were deployed ah. ahead of schedule, I believe. So we were the dummies. You were the dummies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they haven't got the report yet, I can let them know that <laughs> it's good. It's really good. Um, we never actually saw the scuds, of course, because by the time they were overhead, they were out of fuel and just ballistic missiles. Um, but we think we had 22 of them, judging by the number of Patriots that were fired. There's usually two or three per, per scud. <clears throat> so it was quite a firework show. This is in Riyadh that you were in? This was in Dahran, oh, right. um, which we reckoned was the scud capital of the world, because Riyadh only got eight. But they got some fatalities. Um, I moved out of Dahran, and then uh, the barrack block beside us, uh, full of US reservists, which made it rather personal, that was hit by a scud, uh, which killed 22. And uh, that was the Americans' worst number lost in a single incident in the Gulf. And because they were reservists, and because they were in the hotel, and they were very nice hotels, just down the road, it really, um, really brought it home. Yeah. We had at the hotel we had scuds on three sides within half a kilometre. Again, we pride ourselves; we were definitely the prime target. They were really out to get us, <laughs> uh, but luckily, no, nobody was hurt uh, in our contingent. Yeah. Forty-seven were killed, and that was less than would be expected in a major exercise, despite the fact it was a war. Um, in the exercise Safe Syria, which I was involved in much later in Oman, 22 British soldiers were killed, and that was a pure exercise.
Wow. Nobody fired a malicious bullet at them. So 47 for a war is pretty damn good. That's amazing, isn't it? It is. Um, and when I got home, um, obviously you get grabbed to give presentations to various people, um, RAF Chivna for one, because that was my local airbase. Uh, and I always used to get into my spiel um, a bit of Churchillian rhetoric. And, and I used to say that, so far as the medical branch was concerned, never in the field of human conflict was so little done for so few by so many. <laughs> because when we got casualties in, they would come in by Hercules and the medical team of four would usually outnumber the casualties. We were supposed to have um, 40 in a short Hercules or 60 in a, a stretched C3 um, a time, but we, we got two and three or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes a few more. I flew 22 once, but they were mostly non-battle casualties. Um, and they were very well looked after. But we were prepared to deal with a thousand a day for five days. Wow. And we were prepared for all those people to be chemically contaminated. And of course, it never happened. Uh, but thank goodness we were ready in case it had happened. There was a very nice finale for me. Um, I was moved from Dharan to Riyadh because nothing was happening at Dharan. Uh, and it was from Riyadh that I actually did my flights up to the front. Um, in the battle plan, had it occurred, each medical team of four, uh, five, because the doctor was supernumerary, would fly with a Hercules from Riyadh to al Khazumar, which was on the tri-border area where Iraq met um, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Uh, the three borders met on a pinpoint, and al Khazumar was very near there. Yeah. Fantastic place to visit. I've got some, or many photographs, uh, lots and lots of aircraft. Um, but we were to fly up on a Hercules which would be weighted out. That is to say, it'd be carrying the maximum weight it could of ammunition. Yeah. Whilst we were up there, the ammunition was being unloaded. As it was unloaded, we were progressively erecting the stretcher banks, starting from the front, working back. And pretty much when they got the last stuff out of the aircraft, we had a 48 or 60, 64, 48 or 64, I think, with the two fits. Um, of stretchers up, ready to take casualties. As I say, the maximum I ever involved was 22. Um, then we would have flown back uh, to Al Jabal, which had certain specialist hospitals, particularly surgical and burns, if I remember rightly. And then we would fly on to um, Riyadh with the rest, the more general medical or general surgical casualties. Neurosurgery and burns at Jabal from memory. Uh, but we never put the plan into action, so that's why I don't remember it. But I still have the piece of paper that was pushed under my door in my four-star hotel, um, which A4 sheet of paper, um, every th I was on every fourth line, I think, and it gave my duties. I was going to do a three-hour round flight with stopover times, 
um, from Riyadh to Al Jabal to uh, sorry Riyadh to Al Khazuma to Al Jabal to Riyadh, um, and then on the same aircraft go and do the whole thing again every three hours. Um, and everybody else was doing the same in other aircraft, so we had, um, I don't know how many aircraft, but they were just in a constant air bridge. Right. And the only rest we could have would be if we could get some sleep lying on the ammunition on the way up. And we were to continue this for five days because the reckoning was that at the end of five days the armies would have fought themselves to a standstill. It actually took 100 hours, yeah. <laughs> and we didn't have any casualties, or very, very few. But um, it's always interesting to know what the planning is for. You always have to plan for the worst, but certainly we got off extremely lightly. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Very much so. Yes, at Riyadh, we happened to be co-located uh, with Kiwi Corner. Right. Uh, the RNZAF had one Hercules in theatre at all times, and that was part of our medevac assets. Uh, I got as far as being manifested on it and sadly um, I had to go and do something else and I had to go sorry, say sorry I can't go on this flight with you. However, 20 years later there was a 20 year reunion at Fanua Pai by which time I knew some people at Fanua Pai and they said you've got to come along. So I flew in that aircraft 20 years late. Right. <laughs> a bit like the, the Lancaster yesterday, got there in the end just took a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was lovely, you know, it was a tiny detachment from New Zealand, but as always, small in numbers, great in morale, in heart and in capability. Half a dozen spare parts, one spare propeller and a, I don't know, three spanners and a couple of screwdrivers. Um, it was all within uh, an area of probably 30 foot square, proudly labelled Kiwi Corner. And again, got photographs. But covering both detachments, the Aramid and the Kiwis, um, was uh, a, a whiteboard, because we just pressed into service whatever we had, uh, a whiteboard which was the NBC alert state, and on it would be date, time and situation. And uh, luckily it always said NBC state black which means no threat, right? or no immediate threat. But uh, as we left, then, and I have a photograph of this, looked at the board and scribbled on it and read was, so long, Poms. It's been great knowing you. In fact, it's been so great that we no longer even slag off the Poms. If you find another war, give us a shout. We'd like to be there. <laughs> Cheers. Piggy. And 20 years later, I took that photograph to uh, Fanua Pai, and I was introduced to Piggy and shook his hand. Right. <laughs> so it was really rather nice because at that stage, New Zealand, where's that? Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but New Zealand is now home, and I'm very lucky that, that it is. Brilliant. Search and rescue. That's it. One sideline, not service, was search and rescue. Uh, sheer luck, I obtained a job as a general practitioner in North Devon, in the southwest of England, right beside the then disused airfield of, of Chivana, ex-RAF Chivana. 
I didn't know it until I arrived that it was actually being rebuilt because the RAF were going to reopen it. But it all had always had a search and rescue unit based there since 1955, okay. uh, going right back to the Sycamore and then the Whirlwind, which was still there when I arrived, and then the Wessex and finally the Sea King. Um, so on the grounds that uh, it wouldn't last for long, there'd be an RAF doctor soon, one of my colleagues, uh, medical colleagues, took me down and introduced me because he went on the occasional search and rescue mission um, and he wouldn't mind if I did some of them. Yeah. And having had one flight and been winched in a whirlwind, I managed to find an excuse to get a second flight and um, a third flight. And, um, 1,200 hours later, <laughs> the RAF doctors never or almost never flew on um, search and rescue missions because the airfield reopened with Hawks on advanced training. And I was very lucky to get 50 hours in Hawks uh, doing all the course for the Tactical Weapons Unit, all in the wrong order. Right. I did every exercise that was in there, wow. including air combat, which was something else. Um, during that time, uh, until I was unfit to fly further, 22 years with 22 Squadron, which rather nice uh, as long as it wasn't 617 squadron that would have been far too <laughs> far too lengthy 175 missions most of which were nothing um, a search which turned out to be a false alarm but the occasional one was really satisfying or really memorable memorable uh, the harrier that took off from Boscombe down and disappeared it took off it changed frequency, and was not further contactable through air traffic. Radar located it flying out to sea off the southwest of England. There happened to be a C-141 nearby, which was vectored alongside, and they confirmed canopy gone, seat in, no pilot. Sure. Ah. Where is he? We had a 150-mile line to search and a misleading report of a mid-air explosion which started us off in the right place. So Chivener with its two Wessex and um, lots of other agencies were out combing the track until that was day, night, day. And then in the second evening, I, I suddenly got a phone call at home, or a phone call to my wife and I was giving a lecture somewhere and, and she rushed in and said, here's your medical bag, they need you now. Uh, and that was it as far as the lecture was concerned. Sorry, scouts, I went back and did it later. Right. Uh, so, without any prior preparation, grabbed my bag and went. Um, just pulled an immersion suit on over what I was wearing and the aircraft was already rotor running and we were off. A farmer in Wiltshire had seen something in a field in the morning, but he didn't investigate, just wondered, what's that? And it was still there in the evening, so he wandered over, and it was the body of the pilot. Right. Covered by a ripped, torn, blood-stained parachute. Um, so we were scrambled to secure the scene, so as to speak. Um, 
It was, it went on uh, through the late night. We landed there, it's probably um, 11 o'clock at night by the time we landed, it was certainly dark. Just a few police, a body in the middle of a field of short corn um, covered by a parachute and we knew that we couldn't touch anything because clearly the man was dead. Uh, I suppose it was my job to say he was dead but it didn't require an awful lot of skill. Uh, so we had to wait for the police to arrive. When the police did arrive then they took their photographs Oh, one thing I did find before they arrived, just doing an expanding search, sort of being a search and rescue person, I do my searches, yeah. um, and 25 yards from the runway, I found the pilot's watch with no strap. Yeah. And I said, I stuck a stick in beside it and said, right, leave it there, don't touch it. Um, and the inference was, and, and it was agreed later, that as the chap had hit the ground without a parachute, effectively, yeah. his arm had been extended with enormous force. Enough force, in fact, to rip the watch off its strap and send it 25 yards. Wow. So that was a, you know, a, a tiny bit of evidence. Um, the way you have to look at a crash scene, you have to read the evidence. Yes. But when the police had their photographs, then we could move the parachute. The parachute instantly was ripped to shreds and tied up, twisted up into knots. Yep. Um, I could see on his uh, um, knee pads that there was three qualities of writing. Very clear writing, adequately clear writing, and drunken writing. And I, I called the police back and said, must have a photograph of that. Um, he wrote those on the ground, probably before he got in the aircraft. That's why it's neat. He wrote these while he was taxiing. That was QFE, QNH, and such like. And then he wrote these in the air whilst he was running out of oxygen. Right. I think he ran out of oxygen, didn't manage to do the right thing in the circumstances and somehow or other managed to eject himself. So it was, it was nice to have a, an input into the inquiry straight away. There was also there, by that time, two RAF officers. One was a Harrier pilot, one was a Harrier engineer, um, and they were the um, professional witnesses to, for the inquiry, so they went to the scene of the pilot. We found his dinghy too um, the next day. So um, that was it for us. Uh, it was no longer our problem, but we were a long way from home and it was two o'clock in the morning and Boscombe Down was four miles away. So the pilot who had been literally flying day, night, day, night said, I am not able to fly home, but I don't want to stay here. We'll go to Boscombe. And that was one of the most bizarre nights of my life. We went to Boscombe Down. We walked into the mess because there was a lot of noise and we found that we were at the end of a ladies' dining-in night. Four of us in immersion suits, everybody else in mess kit and ball gowns. Uh, and it is amazing how popular a search and rescue crew is amongst air crew. Because that's the person that's going to get come and get you out of trouble when you really haven't got any options left. So it was a very memorable night. Um, but we eventually got to bed and got a few hours sleep. Again, 
such hospitality because not I was so welcome, but a search and rescue crew was so welcome. Here is the Boscombe Down hangar. Um, it happens to be Saturday, so of course we're not working. Here is the key. We have a number of interesting aircraft. So I was given a tour of all the um, uh, aircraft that they had on strength at the time. All sorts of funny things like the um, Jaguar, which was reverse stabilized so that it was a dynamically unstable aeroplane, right. flown, entirely flown by wire yep. uh, to test fly-by-wire to its ultimate limits because if it failed, <laughs> this thing wasn't going to survive. Right. Uh, I can't remember what the other strange aircraft were, but it was lovely to see a Harvard there. Okay. They still had a Harvard, um, and years later I worked there as a medic, and I stood by whilst that Harvard had an undercarriage problem. Um, and I was on the crash team. I would have been the last person to pull the pilot out of an RAF Harvard, but unfortunately he managed to get the, the undercarriage down. Um, well, fortunately. Well, no, I think unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but um, they were so hospitable, and then we spent the rest of the next day uh, searching the track and we recovered most of the cockpit canopy. That was interesting because the cockpit canopy was broken uh, but not by the detonating cord. The canopy has a zigzag line of explosive um, attached to it yeah. and that uh, exposed the canopy to minute fragments just milliseconds before the seat goes through where the canopy had been but actually, that hadn't exploded. There were big chunks of perspex up to a couple of feet across. Yeah. So the seat had gone through uh, with the seat top breaking the canopy uh, just before the pilot's head went through. But I know he survived that long, but not much longer. Yeah. Um, and we found the dinghy because that was attached to his uh, parachute survival pack, uh, but it had come separated. Eventually it was decided that, that hypoxia was not the cause of the crash, but at least years later at Farnborough I had a chance whilst I was there on a course to say that I didn't agree with the findings of the board. Um, the findings of the board were that um, there had been a loose object in the cockpit and that as the pilot turned west towards the setting sun he had motored the cockpit down and the loose object had fouled the rod leading to the manual separation sear. Um, and that had fired the manual separation, which fires the drogue chute out of the seat and goes through the canopy, if it's still in the cockpit, which deploys the parachute which, and cuts the seat harness and pulls a rather surprised pilot out at 600 miles an hour. Right. Um, that, that was the findings of the Board of Inquiry, but at least I had the satisfaction of the Professor of Aviation Medicine, who was an air marshal, looking through the original documents for the report and saying, nope, they had your evidence, they considered it, but they did not think that was the reason why. Um, he, they felt that his oxygen mask became unconnected. I forgot to mention his oxygen mask was unconnected from his life jacket. That became unconnected during the force of the landing and as you yourself proved by finding the watch, the force of the landing was extreme. Right. So fair enough, Court of Inquiry did its job and 
I just have to say, well, I think they got it wrong. However, that's the way it is. Um, some searches, of course, are far more satisfying than that. Being scrambled in the evening for a diver who, off the South Devon coast, has been missing for hours, they always call you in the evening. But um, he had been diving in rough sea, he had searched, well, the boat with him and the other divers with him had just not seen him again. But they presumed he had surfaced or hoped he had surfaced, but they couldn't see him and they'd done a bit of a search themselves and, you know, they eventually called in help. So two lifeboats, ourselves, and as many local boats as were aware were, were out there looking. And the Coast Guards, of course, always work out a search area based on the wind, the tide and the times. So they gave us the search area. We never believed them. Uh, so we, we searched the area, but instead of turning back on the boundary of the area, ah, come on, another minute. Yeah. So another minute, another, uh, I don't know, two miles. Uh, no, we were going slowly. Another half a mile or whatever, hover taxiing really. And then on the outside of the turn, the winchman, who had phenomenal eyesight, and luckily he was on that side of the aircraft and I was on the inside of the turn. He said, over there, uh, three o'clock, 100 meters. And at 100 meters or so, he had seen the yellow stripe around the mask of the otherwise all black diver. Um, and the outcome of that, of course, was that the chap was picked up, he was back in, he wasn't hypothermic um, he, he, because he was in a full wetsuit, uh, but he was picked up, he was, he was back in a dive boat, they were all in the pub before it closed. <laughs> if he hadn't been seen then, he would not have been alive in the morning. No. And the search area by the morning, yes, we'd have searched, but the search area would have been huge. Exactly, yeah. Um, so that, at a time like that, when you find somebody who is doomed to die and you bring them back, it's a really wonderful feeling, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, sadly, mostly it's a search, and either you discover the search wasn't needed, because they're down at the pub, actually, but yeah. forgot to tell somebody they were back, yeah. or, um, or some other innocent explanation. It, it always drew a groan. If you were scrambled for a rescue, all adrenaline. Yeah. You know, the bell goes, it's just like a Battle of Britain scramble. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, a button by the telephone and the person answers the telephone, which is a direct line to Rescue Coordination Centre and scribbles on a pad and you wonder, is this some information that danger area such and such will be active when it hasn't actually been notammed or not? And there was one chap who was absolute master of the art of being totally nonchalant and then he'd put the phone down and press the bell. <laughs> Grumble! And the, the hooter rang in, I don't know, half a dozen locations in the rescue flight. Everybody knew. And um, there are records. We had to be airborne in 15 minutes, but three or four was common. And, and certainly I've launched into a Wessex, which was actually off the ground. Uh, <laughs> only an inch or two, yeah. but um, 
you know, just throwing the last bit of kit in and, and scrambling on and doing the odd little thing like putting a harness on once you're airborne. Um, or putting the immersion suit on once you're airborne, which means obviously not wearing a harness. Uh, at night, you're allowed 45 minutes to scramble because at night you had to do more detailed planning. But it never took 45 minutes. Right. It, was a, it was a matter of honour that uh, the times were recorded, they were promulgated around the search and rescue force, and yours had to be best. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> but the pilots were so capable that, you know, the privilege of going on rescues in foul conditions and thinking, this weather's unflyable with this wind, that sea below, this low mist <coughs> drifting through the area we're in, that cliff so close, aircraft bucking about all over the place. But I'm not worried. These chaps know what they're doing. Uh, and that included landing into a hundred knot gale during a very severe storm, landing up over the top of a slope into the tea garden of a cafe at Tintagel. And the pilot put in the Sea King down with the rotor less than a metre from the uh, tea house and with the wheel on the other side less than a foot, sorry to mix my uh, units, less than a foot from a vertical drop into a stream um, so that we couldn't actually climb out of the aircraft without <laughs> straight onto sort of rock climbing. Uh, but in the stream was a lad who had been thrown off his bike and uh, was desperately badly injured and the ambulance were doing the best they could but A, they were physically unable to lift him out of the stream which was in a deep gully and B, if they did, then it was probably three hours by road through this storm to get him to Plymouth, which was the nearest suitable hospital. It's, Tintagel's an unlucky place. It's exactly halfway on the north coast from Truro Hospital and Plymouth Hospital. It is the worst possible place to get hurt. Um, uh, but we, we, we got him on board. Um, we didn't actually have to use the winch, there were just enough of us when we turned up to get this lad um, out of the river and up into the aircraft. I couldn't get a, a, an endotracheal tube down to do his breathing for him, so it had to be forced mouth to mouth through clenched teeth because he had a severe brain injury. Yeah. But um, we kept him going, uh, and the good thing was that because I was on board, although I wasn't doing much medical, the winchman and I could together work on the patient, uh, leaving the winch, opera uh, winch operator, yes, who would otherwise have had to work on the patient to act as a more skillful navigator than the pilots, because the winch operator is also the radar operator, and <clears throat> he can steer them safely in that foul weather. Uh, and we got to Robra Airfield at uh, Plymouth. Uh, we were met by an anaesthetist and under the, under the turning rotors, he um, paralyzed the lad with an injection and between us, we got a tube down and improved his breathing considerably. But it was a, a great feeling that we'd given him a chance that, that otherwise he wouldn't have had. I don't actually know the outcome. He certainly had very serious injuries, yes. but um, it was nice to give him a chance.
There were many other uh, good search and rescues, but mostly it was just the pleasure of flying over beautiful country with absolute professionals right. and, and winching down out of the aircraft onto places that nobody could reach unless they happened to have a helicopter and a winch. <laughs> and this was all called training, and the Queen was paying for it. <laughs> Fantastic. So shall we um, just fast forward to now? You're uh, here in Auckland and you're quite um, involved with the uh, New Zealand Bomber Command Association and uh, with MOTAT here. Uh, how did you get involved in, in that? Well, as you and people who will be foolish enough to listen to this will realise that an interest in aviation is incurable. Yep, yep. You just have to live with it. Um, New Zealand actually is extremely lucky. It has world-class collections, world-class air shows um, in a country of only four million people. I haven't done any statistics, but I would venture to suggest there are more historic aircraft per square metre in New Zealand than anywhere else in the world. Um, it's, in part, it's a legacy of isolation. But there are some advantages of being a long way from anywhere else. And New Zealand saw the last of so many things like the Sunderlands uh, that, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful place to have the interest. So I've been deeply involved in aircraft preservation here, uh, both with Stan Smith up at North Shore. Yeah. I've had a tiny hand in the Mosquito um, with Glenn Powell which reminds me, I've got a rudder he wants back. Uh, <laughs> and, well, there again, you see, this is New Zealand, and this, I don't think, could happen anywhere else. Glyn Powell glides, so do I. Glyn Powell came up to Fenuapai to tow for us because our tug had crashed. Well, not crashed, the engine blew up. And uh, Rex, the pilot, did an amazingly skillful landing. I was actually in the glider, 400 feet, and to see the tug in front of you suddenly disappear downwards and without any warning, so you think, ah, this is the moment you're supposed to pull the yellow knob, yep. <laughs> and then pull up out of it, turn and look back and see the tug going back beneath you, pouring smoke, yeah. thinking, ah, that'll be the reason why. <laughs> um, it was actually burnt oil. The engine had thrown a crank shaft and self-destructed. When we looked at it, you could see right through the crankcase and out the other side. Um, and looking at the facts and the GPS trace and all the rest of it, it was one of those landings which we conclusively proved was impossible. But not only was it possible, but Rex actually planned it so that unpowered he crossed the, the um, 0826 runway at Fenuapai and came to rest by the gliding club caravan where he knew there were two fire extinguishers. Right. Now, under the circumstances, I think, you know, that was a DFC. Yeah. yeah um, but that's not the way it goes. It was unbelievable skill and, and a lot of other pilots have looked at the facts and said, I couldn't have done that. And the club, of course, was extremely grateful. They said, we don't have a tug now, and we can't afford a new engine. 
If you had crashed the bloody thing, we'd have got a new one on the insurance. <laughs> true. Yeah. And it is absolutely true. The yeah. insurance would have paid for the new engine as well as the new aircraft. Um, but because he was so skillful, we got nothing. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> Irony, indeed. I'm sure that was running through his mind at the time. And yes, of course, we've forgiven him. Um, yeah, there's just so much to do here, uh, and I'm just so lucky to be able to do it. And one of those parts is Motat. When I came to Motat, um, I knew the Lancaster. I knew all about Motat in England, actually, when I was at school. Yeah. Even back in the early 60s, um, there was a magazine hand-produced uh, with a Gestetner printer. Yep. Um, control column it was called, produced by one of the preservation groups and uh, I knew from that I had a, a, a vision of the two flying boats and the Lancaster outside uh, even back in the 1960s and I didn't get here until 2001 okay. um, for the first time. Uh, when I came here in 2001 it was quite simple because I'd bought a map in 1978 while I was in Australia thinking I must go to New Zealand, but I didn't actually do it, so I arrived with a 30-year out-of-date map. Um, and uh, yes, it's been so good, but there was a Lancaster here, and there were then, um, a lot of the Wednesday bomber boys were still coming in, yep. uh, so I showed an interest, as, as you would, and then I said, by the way, we got one of the others because, of course, this is the sister ship of the one that we got back to England. Right. So, although I sometimes like to drop a line and say, this is my Lancaster here at Motat, I actually don't say that. I prefer to say, this is my other Lancaster. <laughs> um, and to have an association with the aircraft um, is just wonderful. But what that has done after all these years, I was always a person who was interested in aircraft and particularly airframe histories or location histories. Yeah. Um, I was diffident about speaking to the air crew. What coming here has done has introduced me to the air crew and made me very, very sad that it took so long. Because the aircraft are great but the people who serviced them and flew them are absolutely beyond compare. Absolutely. And it is just such a privilege to be um, uh, friends of theirs. And last year, thanks to the generosity of Ian Cooperus, uh, I was tour leader, officially, to take five veterans back to the UK. RAF chaps who had moved here after the war and not being RNZAF were not eligible to fly back in the 757 for the actual unveiling of the memorial. Right. But Ian Cooperus stumped up an awful lot of money um, to take the five plus supporters, people like me, and we went to the memorial of course where we were met by Tony Iverson who I really knew from here, yeah. um, and the architect of the memorial no less who, between them, gave us a guided tour of the memorial. You can't have two better guides. Exactly. Um, and everywhere we went, the Kiwis were so popular. Uh, 
we went to um, the Lancaster at East Kirkby and they all went for a taxi in uh, the sister ship of Motats Lancaster, NX611, just Jane. Um, and whilst I was there, I saw an elderly gentleman being escorted by a young flight, uh, a young um, chap in a flying suit. And I'd had correspondence with the memorial flight about the next day's visit. So I saw the name, which is always very prominent on RAF flying suits, and recognised him and thought, if he's escorting this chap around, I need to meet him. Anyway, I need to meet him because of tomorrow. Yeah. So I went up and introduced myself. I was introduced to Wing Commander Trent. He is the cousin, I think, not the brother, I think he's the cousin, of Leonard Trent. Right one of the three Bomber Command Victoria Crosses um, of the Second World War. And he was bright, sprightly, and incredibly interesting to talk to. Also one of the three VCs for the RMZF as well. Yes. Yeah. So, so this was not the man. No, it, was it wasn't Len, yeah. but it was, um, I think, cousin. Anyway, his name was Trent and um, they were closely related and, and we had a fairly obvious uh, uh, topic of conversation. Uh, and not from him, I think it's actually from the biography of Len Trent, I learnt how the award became known. And it may not be generally known. Um, he was a wing commander during the war, uh, 487, I think, That's with correct. Venturas, and of course we've got a Ventura, well we've got an RB34 Lexington, but for this purpose we can call it a Ventura, um, at Motat, uh, and uh, of the aircraft that set out, not one that crossed the enemy coast returned, one turned back early, but I think 11 were lost, and a lot of aircrew, and Trent was one of the last to go down but he had been told, you have to destroy this target. It's a no-turn-back target. And I believe the usual story of, well, if the fighter escort will be with you, but actually they got the day wrong or, or whatever. Um, he stayed in the RAF post-war as a flight lieutenant. And at some RAF base, he was out at the pub at night. He got back to the mess midnight, and the chap on the desk, because... Even in my day, there was always somebody on the desk right through the night. Chap said, ah, flight lieutenant Trent, sir. Message from the station commander. You are to ring him immediately you come in. And the chap, when did he say that? Ten o'clock, sir. Two o'clock. I am not going to ring the station commander at 2 a.m. <laughs> but I was only obeying an order, sir. Uh, flying officer Trent. <laughs> I think you're taking the mickey, Pilot Officer Trent. <laughs> You'll be a sergeant in two minutes. So he just went to bed. Next morning, I rate demand from the station commander, my office, hat on now. Um, hat on is always bad news yes. indoors. Yes. And he stood to attention in front of the station commander who said, Trent, last night, I was entertaining some distinguished guests. You came home at two o'clock and disobeyed a direct order. Had you obeyed it, 
I could have ordered you to come around. I could then have impressed these guests by letting them know that apart from I, yourself, they were the only people to know so far that you have been awarded the Victoria Cross. As it is, I can only tell you, and I think you've let me down badly. <laughs> All words to that effect. Um, and obviously there was no animosity, but nevertheless, what a, guess what happened last night? That would have been. Yeah, exactly. I think it was 1947. Or oh, another Victoria Cross. I've been lucky to meet several recipients. I've met Bill Reed. I've, I've met John Cruikshank, who were the last two surviving RAF Victoria Cross holders, and heard their story firsthand. And they're both self-effacing. Bill Reed said, I didn't deserve it. It was too bloody dangerous to turn back. I'd have been flying against the Bonner stream, so I just went straight on, dropped the bloody things, and then came home. Right. Two of his crew were dead, the cockpit had gone, there was a huge hole in the nose, he was freezing to death, he was badly wounded, but yeah, far too dangerous to turn back. Um, and Crookshank actually passed out through lack of blood. Um, from memory, I believe he had 78 wounds some of which would have been quite small, but some of which would not, from um, a flak hit whilst attacking a U-boat. And he passed out through lack of blood, but um, his uh, radio operator, I think, flew the aircraft through the night um, and then uh, got back to Scotland and Crookshank recovered consciousness and said, no, no laddie. Um, it's, it's too dangerous. We've got the fuel. So they carried on flying and they said, right laddie, you're doing well, but I'll take it now if I may. Um, and, and he put it down and ran it onto the beach in one movement because it was gonna sink very, very quickly. Right. Uh, and both of those gentlemen had a story when they turned up at Cranwell, which is where I met them. Yeah. They turned up to the amalgamation of the Royal Auxiliary Air Force and the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. The story is that the Royal Auxiliary Air Force were gentlemen trying to be officers. Um, the Royal Air Force were officers trying to be gentlemen, and the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve were neither trying to be both. <laughs> and that was told to me by somebody in the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. Um, they turned up as guests of honour because, of course, they're not RAF. Like all wartime aircrew, they're Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. The war was commanded by Cranwell graduates. It was fought by reservists. Um, admittedly, they knew as they joined up that they were going into action, but they were technically reservists. And they both brought their VCs, as, as you would. <laughs> One, I can't, they're both Scots. One went through security at Inverness Airfield and uh, um, despite emptying his pockets, he set off the alarm. So a 20-year-old said, if you could go back through again, sir. And he did, and it set it off again. Oh, it'll be my VC. <laughs> so he took out this Victoria Cross and passed it to the chap. Sorry, forgot about it. And the chap didn't know what a Victoria Cross was. The other story, and I think <laughs> this one is um, Reed. Reed turned up at Cranwell 
at the guard room, which is incidentally um, an old railway station, uh, preserved exactly as it used to be as an old railway station. It's really quite quaint. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the RAF for you, that's Britain for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, he checked in and, and he said, uh, John Cruikshank, uh, or Bill Reed, um, guest for tomorrow's ceremony. No, he didn't. He said, flight lieutenant, guest for tomorrow's ceremony. And the corporal on the desk, smart chap, said, ah, be nice to have your service number, sir. Corporal, I know this is a chargeable offence, but I can't remember it. Oh, hang on. Here it is. It's on the side of the VC. <laughs> Brilliant. And that wasn't up yours. That was genuinely, I found it. Yeah. Thank goodness, my memory is terrible these days. <laughs> and the corporal, with every respect to him, leapt to his feet, no hat on of course, and, and snapped off the most brilliant salute and said, welcome sir, Fantastic. an honour to meet you. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's the sort of differing reactions of probably two people much the same age. Wow. Uh, wow. But both great chaps. Yes, the BC. Um, 22 Squadron won one Victoria Cross. They flew both forts during the Second World War before they went on to both fighters, which was a much better aircraft. Both forts in um, the Atlantic, out of Cornwall uh, and Scotland, yeah. and both fighters in the Far East from Ceylon and now Sri Lanka and Burma. On the bow forts, um, Campbell. Flying Officer Kenneth Campbell. The Nijnor and the Scharnhorst were known to be in Brest Dock. Um, they were slightly damaged and they were undergoing repairs. And the idea was to try and disable them further. And the details of this, of course, you can look up and, and I'll be wrong, but the basic details, I'll be right. Um, 22 Squadron were ordered to attack with torpedoes inside the harbour, which is technically quite difficult to reacquire the correct height um, and drop the torpedo early enough to arm, um, and not so early that it just dives and goes straight underneath. So it was going to be difficult. Eight were to go. Uh, eight were to go. I think only four got airborne because the weather was foul there at St. Evel and that was, it had runways, but aircraft got bogged down getting to the runways. I think they probably didn't even have peri tracks, although it was a pre-war airfield, St. Evel. Um, I think only four got airborne. So instead of eight, it's halved. And they flew independently. Uh, Campbell arrived at the rendezvous, which there are the islands of Wisson which, of course, the British call Wishant. <laughs> they write it as W-I-S-S-A-N-T, Wishant, O-U-I-S-S-A-N-T. Um, he arrived at the rendezvous where they were to orbit and then try and do something resembling a coordinated attack because eight aircraft get one-eighth of the shells each rather than, well, nobody else turned up. Uh, that was not anything other than the severity of the weather. They, they just couldn't get there. Um, 
So, well, we will never know what was said, but he obviously decided he was going in. Uh, so he made his attack. Um, he would have had to have lifted the aircraft over the mole, the harbour mole, and then down to um, down to dropping height of 20 feet or whatever it is. And he's got two German battleships who are not disinterested in the proceedings, <laughs> flying at a large, slow aircraft on a predictable course. Because normally the battleship would be moving as well as the aircraft moving. Yeah. Now the battleships are stationary, so they they've only got a single deflection computation to make. Yeah. And what's more, it's head-on, so there actually isn't a computation to make. There's only a drop computation to make. Yeah. Just aim that much above and that'll get him. Um, and the aircraft was hit, the aircraft was on fire, uh, but the Germans were astounded that it was still kept on course, and sometime after it started burning, the torpedo was dropped accurately, um, to the extent that it took six months to repair the damage. Um, and as soon as the torpedo dropped, the aircraft just keeled over and went straight in. The Germans recovered the four bodies, and even then, and I think it was 1942, again, the facts are easy enough to check, even then, the Germans said, these are not ordinary men. They gave the crew a burial with full military honours which is unusual. I don't know that it's unique, but it's unusual, especially that late into the war, because you know the story. The, you know, the first casualty of war is truth. The second is politeness. And the third is sleep. Yeah. Um, and by then, several years into the war, people weren't doing much more than sticking by the laws of the Geneva Convention, but not being too nice about it. After your jam. Yeah. Um, oh, I see you've been damaged. Well, good luck. I hope you get home. There's none of that. But no. they gave a, they had a major ceremony. And the French resistance noted this and reported it to London as, as being, you know, not the normal. Right. Something happened here, chaps. Four Union Jacks on four coffins on four gun carriages escorted by, I don't know, but, you know, a major funeral procession. Um, and uh, as a result of post-war research, because obviously there was no possibility during the wartime, the, the facts were uncovered, and Campbell was awarded his Victoria Cross posthumously, not surprisingly, but not until 1947. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, in fact I am aware, it is the only Victoria Cross awarded on the immediate recognition by the enemy. There was another because um, Trick, ah. who was um, RNZF, yes, he um, he attacked a German U-boat, and the, he was shot down in the process. But sank the U-boat, and the, when the captain was picked up, he recommended the, the Victoria Cross. As I said, everything I've said today can only be treated as being the utmost accuracy and beyond reproach. <laughs> and if Wikipedia or somebody else disagrees, well, that's just unfortunate. <laughs> They'll have to change it. Thanks, Dave. Yes, not, not I, now that you've said that, I've suddenly remembered. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, and of course, the Channel Dash Victoria Cross to Lieutenant Commander Esmond, who until I got here, I thought was a Kiwi. Ah. Um, and I, I drove into Takapuna for the first time and saw Esbern Road. And I said, great, they've named a road after him. <laughs> no, wrong. Uh, 
but um, his was the only Victoria Cross awarded on the recommendation of a different service. Ah, right. Because the Navy operated out of Manston with their six swordfishes. In the evening, there were three men in the bar instead of 18, and they had been fished out of the sea. And um, I forget the chap's name, but he's well known. It might be John Cunningham. Somebody, uh, the station commander, thought, mm, this requires action. And he wrote the initial citation. Once he had spoken to these survivors, he wrote the initial citation for Esmond's VC, uh, which again is, you know, some people in the Navy and the Air Force would say, for God's sake, you don't want the other lot to get one. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, honor prevailed and this deserves recognition. I'll set it in motion. Okay. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've probably drained, drained you enough of stories, but it's been fantastic to listen to all this. Um, you're, you're along an interesting career in, in aviation, right back to when you were a kid and a teenager and um, all the preservation work you've done, I just all I can say is thank you for saving those aircraft when you did and, and for continuing to work here um, on preservation in New Zealand as well. Well, thanks Dave. Um, I wasn't terribly keen on this interview because I've actually achieved nothing, but I've witnessed a lot and that's been on the basis of don't ask, don't get, which I think is a great motto to live by. But I would also very heartfeltly like to thank New Zealand for welcoming, welcoming me um, so enthusiastically. I think this is a fantastic country. And I don't disagree. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's been awesome. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. 